Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Serial Killers Cafe. Uh, I am your host, Stephanie, and unfortunately my co-host, Ariel, is still sick, so she is actually not going to be joining us today. Um, So it's just me solo. Probably won't be nearly as fun, uh, but definitely didn't want to make you guys wait another week before you got an episode. So today we're actually talking about randy craft who we spoke about in our last episode very briefly towards the end um just because he has connections with william bonin who was a serial killer we did last episode uh robert craft is also known as the scorecard killer the southern california strangler and another serial killer as we stated last episode that is also known as the freeway killer which again is kind of crazy that there were literally more than one serial killer with the same nickname completely unrelated to each other at the same time in the same place murdering people crazy so let's dive in so randy Kraft was born in march of 1945 again uh he was from long beach california um a majority of his crimes were also committed in california um so let's get on to his early life so as i said he was born in long beach he was the fourth child and the only son born to opal lee and harold herbert Kraft. his parents actually moved to california from wyoming after world war ii outbreak um, and his father was working as a production worker and his mom did sewing machine operator jobs uh they lived you know very modestly they didn't he wasn't spoiled i guess you could say um and there wasn't really a lot of his early age that told us much about it he didn't seem to have a poor childhood i guess is what i'm trying to say um he seemed that everything was fairly normal i mean his parents worked he wasn't super spoiled but you know they still had a small but nice home and you know he was able to eat and had a roof over his head um definitely had a better off childhood than william bonin um <clears throat> he was very interested in politics uh so i guess that was exciting for him um he had aspirations of actually becoming a u.s senator at one point but apparently <laughs> went serial killer instead um he had said that he knew in his high school days that he was uh, a homosexual even though he kept it a secret. So he actually, as we talk about numerous times, serial killers are super smart. So he graduated 10th out of his class of 390 people and then went to Claremont Men's College, which is also in California, and he pursued a bachelor's degree in economics. So he then, after um, enrolling in Claremont Men's College, he actually enrolled in the Reserve Officer Training Corps and he actually attended demonstrations in support of the Vietnam War and was really into everything because at the time his plans to become a U.S. senator were still valid. Uh, at that same time, and this was, mind you, about 1964 now, um, he entered his first known homosexual relationship. In 1964, he was also working as a bartender and it catered to gay clientele, other homosexuals. And he was definitely known to travel back and forth from Laguna Beach and Huntington Beach just to have casual sex with different hustlers. 
so he tried to announce his sexuality to his parents, so he took a bunch of male friends, quote-unquote friends I say there, to meet his family in the years he was enrolled at Claremont. But his parents and his sisters were actually oblivious to the fact that he was a homosexual and did not pick up on the hints that he was trying to give them. In 1966, he was arrested and charged with lewd conduct because he tried to uh, proposition an undercover policeman in Huntington Beach. He had no criminal record before that. No charges were filed. And then the following year, he just totally went, like, his beliefs, everything, political beliefs, completely flipped. He had become a super supporter of the left-wing politics, registered as a Democrat, and the same year he registered as a Democrat, he became a party organizer, campaigned really hard, working like hours and hours and hours for the election of Robert Kennedy, and even received a personal letter from the senator thanking him for his efforts, which is really cool, if you ask me. Uh, so by his senior year, though, he was drinking, doing drugs, ret- attending like gambling. He did like gambling and poker with other kids. He really had had lost his drive to be that great student that he was when he had first he actually when he had first enrolled he actually had to repeat a few classes which is kind of crazy um because it deferred his graduation by eight months just because he was screwing around uh once he graduated college he did join the u.s air force he was sent to basic training in texas the same year uh he told his family he was a homosexual so finally he was like, okay, you guys didn't pick up on my clues. I'm gay. His father basically like flew into a rage and he said his supposedly his mother was more understanding but still disapproving. Uh, as we know, especially in that time, you know, being a homosexual wasn't nearly as accepted now. And we still have issues with people accepting it now, but it was way less accepted back in the 1970s. So... That was kind of crazy as well, Um, just because he isn't the first homosexual serial killer that we've come across during this time frame. So that definitely puts added pressure on him just as a person, uh, because it's it was such an uncommon. It was a very private thing. People obviously looked down upon it. um, And basically, once he told everyone, his family like accepted his sexuality as best they could. But he began to distance himself once he told them with his sisters and his parents. Then he received a discharge from the Air Force after announcing his sexuality to his superiors, which was obviously, it was listed as being on medical grounds, and he even, Kraft even sought legal advice from an attorney. He was trying to challenge the grounds regarding his discharge from the Air Force, but the Air Force refused to change the status of his discharge. So, once he was discharged, he moved back in with his parents, and he worked as a bartender. So, not, obviously not ideal after everything he's worked for to end up back here purely based on his sexuality. So, now I take you to 1970, uh, March of that year, and there was a 13-year-old boy named Joseph Gerald Foncher. I want to say Foncher, at Huntington Beach. And he told Kraft that he had, like, run away from home that day. And so Kraft was like, oh, it's totally cool, bro. Like, come hang out in my apartment. I'm the coolest and not creepy at all. And so he went there. And, like, he, Kraft even told him he could live, like, this 
kid could live with him. He was like, why don't you come and hang? And then you can live with me and it'll be great. And so this poor runaway was probably like, oh, this is a perfect opportunity. I wanted to run away and now I have a place to stay already. It's been like no time at all. And basically what happened was they got to the apartment in Belmont Shore and craft assaulted and drugged drugged and assaulted him. Sorry, I said that backwards. Uh, eventually, the boy escaped from Kraft's apartment um, because Kraft had to actually leave to go to work and just left the boy there in his apartment. Um, so someone that, like, in the neighborhood, I'm guessing, because the kid ran out of the house or the apartment building, um, got an ambulance because he saw Fonter, like, being drugged and, like, stumbling, and he was super disheveled and everything like that. Um, and he actually required having his stomach pumps because there were so many drugs that he had ingested at this time. So once he got to the hospital and his stomach had been pumped and he was feeling better, Fontra basically was like, yeah, okay, so Kraft gave me a bunch of drugs and beat me up and someone go get him. And he didn't tell the cops or his parents that he had been sexually assaulted. Um, he was, though. And so then they basically conducted an apartment search of Kraft's apartment. Um, but the 13-year-old boy, Foncher, was like, oh, I took the pills voluntarily. And since, and they actually searched Kraft's apartment without a warrant, so no charges were filed. So that was like one thing under. And that was his known, first known sexual assault. He could have sexual assaulted many people before that, but we're just not sure. We, that was the first one that was on record, I guess we should say. Um, so that was in March of 1970. Now we move on to 1971 and Kraft had found an appointment as a forklift driver in Huntington Beach. So he was trying to like further his career following the military discharge because that was still obviously weighing heavy on him. And so he enrolled at Long Beach State University and took teaching courses. And he actually met a fellow teaching student from Minnesota. His name was Jeff, Jeff Graves, and he was four years younger than Kraft, but they began to have a relationship. And that was in 1971. So now between 1971 and 1983, so 12-year period, um, Kraft was believed to have killed 67 victims total. Could be more. Uh, we've talked, Ariel and I have talked about this a bunch of times with you guys. Usually they have a ton more victims and we just don't know about them because they can't be linked to all of them um so it's known that he has killed or believed that he has killed six seven victims that we can put his face to all the victims were male eight, between the ages of 13 and 35 which is a huge age gap i mean i think some of these serial killers just i guess don't really have much of a preference they don't care if there's five people or i mean if there's like five-year-olds or like 15 year olds and others, you know, will only go through a very specific frame of age, like five, five to six or something like that. So this is definitely a wide range. Uh, most of them were in their late teens and mid twenties, even though some of them were as young as 13 or old, as old as 35. Um, so he was actually charged with and convicted of 16 of these homicides, which had all occurred between 1972 in 1983 and most of his victims were actually enlisted in the marine corps um so i assume that because he was discharged on his own like you know when he was in the air force that was obviously a big 
reason that he went after Yeah, that was the big reason he went after them, I'm guessing, is a little bit of resentment. So typically he would lure his victims into a vehicle and offer, like, a ride somewhere or alcohol. And then once they would get in the car, he would basically give them tons of alcohol and drugs. And then he would, you know, tie them up, torture them, sexually abuse them, and then kill them. And usually using strangulation... Um, asphyxiation, bludgeoning, even the, some of his victims did end up ingesting fatal doses of pharmaceuticals and one of them was stabbed to death. So he was kind of all over the place. Um, so let's like kind of narrow back to his first murder victim. So in October of 1971, he, the police had found um, a naked body of a 30-year-old re- Long Beach resident. His name was Wayne Joseph Duquette. And he was a bartender at a gay bar named The Stable. And he had last been seen alive in September, 20, uh, September 20th. So it actually took them 15 days to find him. Uh, there were no signs of foul play left on the body by the time the police had found it, and the cause of death was listed as acute alcohol poisoning. Uh, the first entry in Kraft's personal journal, journal, also referred to as his scorecard, a.k.a. the scorecard killer, reads stable. Um, so investigators believed that that was Kraft's first murder victim based on that. So, yeah, that's, that is one of many. So buckling guys, we're going through the rest of them. Okay. So then 15 months goes by, which is an insane amount of time to just wait and chill. Like you just kill one guy, you don't even get caught. And then you wait 15 months. So I don't know if maybe he just assumes like the heat was on him or... But he didn't really seem to care so much. So anyway, he waited 15 months. um, And then he killed a 20-year-old Marine named Edward Daniel Moore. And Moore's actually seen alive leaving the barracks on Christmas Eve of 1972. And he was found um, on beside the 405 freeway, like on the super early hours of December 26th. So obviously the day after Christmas. Um, it indicated that he had been discarded. Like, they just threw him out of a moving vehicle, which crazy forensics can literally be like, the way this guy fell, he was definitely thrown from the vehicle. So the autopsy also revealed that he had been tied up, beaten, and uh, he had numerous bite marks, and a sock had actually been forced inside him. So that was... I guess you could say murder number two, because it looks like there's obviously a big gap. But then six weeks after that, another body of an identified male who they have no idea who this guy was. Um, He was strangled and also had a sock placed in his rectum. And then two months after that, on April 9th, the body of 17-year-old Kevin Clark Bailey was found beside the road. And he had been emasculated and sodomized prior to his murder. Then July 28th, two more victims had been murdered. And then, like, he just escalated. So he waited 15 months and all of a sudden was like, I'm going to kill everyone and it's going to be great, which is super, super crazy. So in 1975, we're jumping ahead here because, like I said, so basically between the years of December of 1972, um, he killed a ton of people in that following year. And he was only known to actually kill once more in 1973. So he killed a ton of people 
between 1972 and then he killed like in 1970 and then killed one person in 1973. So the victim was actually a 23 year old student whose body was found on December 29th. And then by 1974, like November as well, uh, a further victim had also been found. Oh, sorry. Five victims had more victims had also been found. Uh, also with foreign objects inside their bodies and also on the side of the freeway, why he's also known as the freeway killer. So, in 1975, Kraft abducted and murdered a 17-year-old high school student named John. He was actually boarding a bus to Long Beach, and they found his body the next day. He was strangled, something was uh, put inside him, and he was left on the freeway. Drag marks actually showed there were drag marks along the beach, close to where his body was found. And so it indicated that two people had actually carried his body to the water. And we didn't hear of any assailants or partners or anyone. Like, William Bonner basically worked with a ton of people. Uh, but Randy Kraft was known to have worked alone. So that was a really interesting tidbit. Um, and so basically two weeks after the murder, in January, so this would be January of 1976 now, the body of a 21-year-old was found discarded in a parking lot. And had been strangled to death with a look with a shoelace, probably his own shoelace. So by nineteen, so by January of that of nineteen seventy five, a total of fourteen victims had already been found discarded, but they were across four separate counties, and were and but they had still all been linked to the same serial killer. So he would he just like like I said he escalated because his first kill, there was like fifteen months between his first and second kill. So the FBI got together and was like, okay, we got to talk about this. Clearly, we have a serial killer on the loose. Not super great. FBI, like, set up a profile, all these fun, crazy things. Uh, the usual, you know, they're like, be careful. This is what he looks like. This is what we think. So some of the investigators believe the murders were more than one people. It was actually, they believe there were two people that were committing the murders, and both of them had military backgrounds. But they could not confirm that there were, like, any other solid suspects that would have been joining Kraft. So then in March of 1976, I want to say, yeah, sorry, 1975, um, two more of his victims died. Um, So he is just killing people like nobody's business they were the two more victims that he killed in that time he killed them in his ford mustang he had given them a ton of beer and valium and then just drove like randomly in different directions and waited until they passed out then two friends of the of the boys that he killed had like seen this black and white mustang enter and like stop super quick and they and then like push them out like so he basically did like a drive-by where you like push them out and drove away so then one of the victims a skull was found in a jetty that was like super close to the marina and the remainder of his body was not found until six months later so obviously upon hearing the news of you know their friend's skull they were like hey there was this Mustang, blah, 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 and, you know, 
there was this guy and he looked super sketchy. And so basically the registration of the vehicle was traced back to Kraft. So the Long Beach, Long Beach police questioned Kraft about like his abduction, about Crotel's abduction murder. Crotel was the one who skull was found on the jetty in his body part, the rest of his body, not till six months later. This was in May of 75. I think I said 76 at some point, so please deny that because I messed up the, the year. I apologize. Um, so, obviously, Kraft was like, I have no clue who you're talking about, guys. I did not meet these gentlemen at all, so I don't know what you're saying. So, they were like, interesting. We don't believe you. Let's bring you, you know, in for even further questioning. We'll keep you here longer. So then he was like, okay, so, like, maybe I did encounter them and told them to, like, have some beers and take some Valium with me. But I returned them, like, back to into the parking lot I picked them up at, and they were totally fine. He's like, so, couldn't have been me. Uh, which is so funny, because I can just picture him being, like, super cocky and being like, obviously this wasn't me, I didn't do anything wrong, but thanks, no thanks. So, Kraft's roommate was actually able to verify to detectives that, like, Kraft had phoned him and gave him a call and was like, hey, um, you know, my car's stuck in an embankment. I need someone to tow me because he had said that he, his car got stuck after he dropped them off and he, like, walked to a gas station. So, obviously, I'm assuming he's just super meticulous and basically told them, like, hey, this is going to be my alibi, so I'm going to call now so someone else can back me up. The detectives on the case were still like, I'm not really sure of how I feel about you because I just don't, I just don't believe you. So they did a little more digging, um, and then they realized that Crotel had died of accidental drowning. And because... Like, Kraft had been questioning his murder, obviously, and then personal life, you know, of getting discharged from the Air Force, and all these things were going down. So they kind of didn't have enough, though, to keep him. So that was, like, in the summer of 1975 that basically he got away with this. He didn't kill again until December 31st when he abducted a 22-year-old. And in this murder was later described by the worst of all of Kraft's known murders, because the man was driven to a remote canyon and then he was bound to a tree. So he basically tied him up against a tree and then said he was strangled to death by leaves and they like lodged something, like he like put something deep into his throat so he obviously couldn't breathe. And it said his cheeks had actually been burned with one of those automobile cigarette lighters, like the little circle things you just click on let it get warm and then like let your cigarette cars don't have them anymore at least mine doesn't i'm pretty sure most don't but um and his and his eyes were destroyed by the same object so he was like burn burn and then he was like oh let me just burn your eyeballs out too while i'm at it so that's disgusting um and there were so many other injuries as well that were described in this but basically he was mutilated to the point of no return and that's why they call it one of his most brutal murders because or his worst murder because there were so many pieces to it that were so almost what you feel like personal and because he literally was like burning him and like he had broken bones and he like stuff was shoved 
up his butt and then down his throat. Like he, like there was just no chance that this poor kid could have ever survived. So then that was in December. And then basically he takes kind of a break. So we're finally in 1976 now. Again, sorry for getting that wrong the first time. Um, and his crass relationship with Graves, the, you know, student teacher who he was dating when he first enrolled in the university had ended. And so he began a relationship with uh, actually a baker named Jeff Seelig and they moved to Laguna Hills. So they weren't like, oh yeah, we want to be monogamous, whatever. They were like, we're kind of just like, we like each other, but like whatever it is, what it is. So eventually Seeger does inform investigators that like him and Kraft would literally pick up hitchhikers and proposition them and then be like, come to our apartment and have a threesome. And he had, but Sealing had never seen him be violent with any of these people at all. So he was like, uh, I don't think you're the right guy. Like, sure, we'd pick them up. But he never, like, was violent during sex or after when they left or anything like that. So, clearly, Kraft knew exactly what he was doing to keep his identity covered because he could literally have other people and he could bring these young men back to his apartment and still let them go and they'd have no idea. So, he, the amount of control he has is pretty insane. So, then we go to... Um, then we go to December of 1976 now, and he is not, like, he, he takes very long breaks, it seems. So, basically, December of 1975 is when he was, when he went to that remote canyon and tied the kid to the tree and then, like, burnt him to death with the cigarette lighter and stuff. And then, then we go to 1976, and he didn't kill until, like, a year later. In December of 1976 was when he is known, was when he has was known to have killed again which is super crazy so that victim was a 19 year old kid his name was paul joseph futures i want to say no clue how to say that guys um he's actually never been found so his body was never found no one knows what happened to him pretty crazy if you ask me so this basically kind of resurfaces him because for so long he just does not do anything because he has apparently the strongest willpower to not kill. So he murders this guy in December of 1976. And then another long period stretch, 16 months goes by, guys. 16 months. And he's like, oh, maybe I should kill again. It's been a while. So in January 3rd of 1978, we're now in, they're talking, the investigators are like, okay, guys, we got to talk about this dude because I'm pretty sure he's still out there and we don't know who he is. And they knew there was more than one murderer, but they didn't exactly know what they were looking for. And like I had said before, like William Bonham was also killing people at this time, um, like in the 70s. And there was other, there was other serial killers. So it was crazy because it's like, how do you make sure you get the right one? Who do you associate them with? But they all seem to have like a tick. It seems like socks and the anus were a really big tell for craft. Um, also burning and burning with the cigarette lighter or bite marks. He, there were very specific, smaller, like little things that he did that added up to him. Sorry, just getting readjusted here, guys. 
Okay, so, like I said, we've now waited 16 months because he has, I don't know, the patience of a serial killer, I guess. So we go to April of 1978. Kraft abducts an 18-year-old. His name is Scott Hughes. He was, like, took a ton and ton of Valium. And then Kraft slits open his scrotum and actually takes one of his testicles and then strangles him to death and then discards him. Like, only took his shoelaces, which, well, and apparently one of his testicles, but only took his shoelaces and just, like, left him. So two months later, in June... A 23-year-old is found, and he had also been emasculated, and then he was stabbed to death. And all the marks on his body had also shown that he had been thrown from a vehicle that was going at a very high speed. Eight days later, we have another 20-year-old who is found. um, Also says he... um, Sorry, his name was... He was a 20-year-old... His name was Richard Keith, and he was left on the side of the road. Um, he had a ton of marks on his wrists that shows like that he'd been tied up before he was strangled. And then he obviously also had a bunch of drugs in his throat as well and alcohol. So three weeks after he kills, oh, excuse me, guys, Richard Keith, we're now in July 6th, he killed a 23-year-old hitchhiker. Also, lots of drug and alcohol, um, strangled with his own shoelace, and then was discarded on the freeway. Then we have, two months later, he kills another guy, left on the freeway. Um, And then the last known victim in 1978 was a 21-year-old truck driver named Michael Joseph Inderbeaton. He was actually castrated as well. And found on the freeway. He had also been violated with a foreign object and suffered a bunch of burn wounds, which they assume was also from, like, a car cigarette lighter. So, as we stated, he has insane amounts of patience. So, that was in 1978. Probably, I want to say, anywhere between the October to December range. Then he doesn't kill again until June of 1979. So, at this point, obviously, he still hasn't been caught, and he is just living his best murdery life. So, 1979, he kills an, another Marine, some kid named Dottie, and throws his body from a moving vehicle. Like I said, all of these are pretty much the same. Thrown from a moving vehicle, alcohol, drugs, uh, usually burn marks, and like strangulation with their own shoelaces. Then, on August 29th, two months later, this is also 1979, another male shows up, and they the entry in Kraft's scorecard book I was telling you guys about earlier, um, it just says 76. So they actually believe he referred, like, that refers to this victim because he was found in two trash bags like he was cut up and found in two trash bags and left behind a union 76 which is a gas station then in november sorry guys this is it it's exciting to do without ariel i miss her dearly i hope she's sleeping and feeling better um all right so now we're at december of 1979 and we're going over all his victims because he has so many um that's just it's insane 
that he just keeps going. And again, for so long, we're talking 12 years. So 1979, he kills a 15-year-old. Um, and then we're in 1980, and he kills a 19, another 19-year-old. And so then we have... In the summer of 1980, Kraft was like, I'm going to go to Oregon because Cool Beans Portland is the greatest. So he goes there beginning in the summer, returns to California at the end of the summer, but is believed to have actually killed two victims while in Portland. So almost all of his murders take place in California, but he did not, he definitely ventured out while he was in Oregon. Like he was like, oh, new turf. Let's just, let's just test the water, see how this goes. So that was him. Went back to California. I obviously killed more people. I'm sure you know where this goes. Then went back to, so then he went to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and then went back to Portland and killed more people there. So he is just all over the place at this point in time. So then that ended, let's see, he traveled. So, yes, so that was like December of that, of 1982, okay? Then in January of 1983, because we know he takes for like really long breaks. Maybe he's just super exhausted, I don't know. Um, in January of 1983, he started, he kills someone else. And then in February of 1983, he also kills someone else. He also kills two more people. So now to get to the good stuff. He finally gets arrested. So in May of 1983, there's these two highway patrol cops in California. And they are watching this car, like, drive really crazy on the interstate. And... So they watch the car like change lane drawing and they thought maybe the driver was drunk. So they tried to get him to pull over. So the driver like slowed down, pulled over, threw a beer bottle onto the pavement. <laughs> so clearly he was drinking. And the officer like walked up and was like, hey, and it was Randy Kraft. And he had like realized that his jeans were on end. And so they had him do a sobriety test and they arrested him for driving while intoxicated, which again, we've talked about this before too. A lot of these men do not get arrested for murdering someone, but they get arrested for something else, like some reckless behavior. And then they're like, oh, by the way, this must be our murderer. So there was actually a man with his eyes closed in the passenger seat of the car and he was, like, covered by a jacket and had MD beer bottles all over the floor by his feet. And so the other police officer tried to, like, wake him up and, like, didn't... There was, like, no response from him. He was, like, shaking him and he could tell that this guy was, you know, not doing so great. So he tried to find a pulse and then realized that the guy was actually dead. So they realized... They, like, moved the jacket and all the beer bottles and everything. And they realized, like, oh, this guy also had his pants down and his hands had been tied up with his shoelace and he had been strangled to death he was a 25 year old so that was his last murder and literally like got pulled over for driving drunk and had his last murder victim in the passenger seat which is insane to me 
So he was initially, Kraft was initially charged with driving under the influence of alcohol. They obviously held him in custody so they could search his vehicle. Um, then they found, like, a belt which matched the bruising around the kid's neck um, because he would, you know, like, bruise them and then basically strangle them, you know, if it wasn't with the belt or a shoelace or really, but it was always general items someone might be wearing or have on them already. Um, so then they also found, like, the alcohol and the drugs and the tranquilizers and all the stuff he had been giving all these guys. And so they removed everything in the car, like the seats, did a bunch of forensic whatever, whatever's. Um, and we're like, okay, this is it. And then they obviously were like, I guess we have cause to search his home now. And so then they found like clothes and personal possessions of so many of the men like that he had murdered over the last decade, which is super crazy. Even fibers from the rug, which... Forensic sounds like a super cool job because fibers from the rug, like, oh, this one piece of fiber from this rug matches this one guy from, like, 10 years ago. Like, that's just crazy to me. I love it. So, that is him in a nutshell, uh, which is super crazy. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, that's just so many people. So the scorecard, which I talked about earlier, and I've mentioned a few times, basically he had like a journal and he basically had a list of like neatly printed terms and phrases. And this, this scorecard was found in his car and each term and phrase was believed to refer to like one of his victims. So it might not have said anything about the victim itself, but maybe it said like, you know, two in one beach and so they're saying oh that means he killed two people and dropped them both off at the beach or whatever the case may be so kind of crazy because they really had to decipher what his coding meant and at the i mean in that initial moment they didn't i'm sure they weren't like well we know it's this guy so they used his scorecard to go back and see who they could find and match murders to that had been happening and then that's what they did. They went through it. So he was actually only formally charged with 15 of the murders, which is so crazy because obviously he killed so many more people, but he was only charged formally with 15 of them uh, when he went to court. So the court date was in May of 1983. And by September, investigators had interviewed over 700 witnesses. 700 witnesses, that's so many people. Can you imagine? Like, Oh my gosh, the longest child ever. And they had given like 250 exhibits of evidence. Like it was just completely insane. And they were like, no, like this dude did it. We have so many people to back us up. It'd be really cool if you could just, you know, trust us. <laughs> so he was charged with all 15 and then two counts of sodomy and one count of emasculation. And he was found gu guilty of 16 counts of murder, the count of sodomy, one count of sodomy, and one count of emasculation. Uh, there was like one other specific count of sodomy that he did not end up getting charged for. So the same jury who, um, I mean, mind you, these, these people have, the trial lasted 13 months and actually ended up being the most expensive trial in Orange County history, which is super crazy but like i mean you have 700 witnesses clearly it's gonna cost a lot of money you have all these people and all this evidence and you know it's not an easy 
done a quick process. And obviously, they definitely wanted to make sure he stayed behind bars. So they basically, in August of 1989, because this trial began in September of 1988, and then in April of 1989 is when closing arguments started. And then in May, he was found guilty. And then in August, which was three months later, they were like, okay, we're going to sentence you to death. And the California Supreme Court actually upheld that sentence in 2000. So currently he's still on death row. He would be like 76 right now. And he is at the San Quentin State Prison. He continues to deny guilt for any of the homicides for which he was convicted or suspected of committing. Because he was always like, oh, I just like hung out with them. But it's totally fine because I don't kill people. That's not who I am. Even though the evidence was overwhelming. So they keep trying. They do believe there was a missing accomplice. They don't know who it could be. They think maybe um, Jeff Graves, who was like one of his former lovers, may have assisted in a lot of the murders. But they don't have any specific evidence linking to him. And he actually died of AIDS in 19. 19- 87 and when he died the police had actually been preparing to like bring him back in because he had talked to the police about craft before when they asked and so they were like you know maybe he, this guy knows a little more than he's leading on and he and then he died so guys that is robert craft and uh, sorry randy craft and it is just crazy that he killed so many people but i think one of the craziest things about it is the patience he had in between everything i mean he's like i said he started killing in 1972 and he did not get caught until 19 like like 12 13 years later and he clearly had patience to just like wait so long and this and i also just think the trial is super insane um 13 months is a really long time obviously i mean that's over a year of a trial one trial for it's just crazy to me so anyway i know it wasn't nearly as fun without ariel to do funny bitter banter with because that's what one of the things i love most about her but i hope you enjoy this week's episode of robert craft and i hope that ariel's feeling better and she can join us next week so thanks for listening guys and have a great wednesday